0: Hello, bonjour tout le monde. Welcome to Concordia University's Fourth Space, officially. Thank you so much for joining us for today's panel conversation entitled The Fine Line. Do we need to separate games and gamification? Exciting stuff. I'll pass it over to our panelists uh, for intros in just a minute. To get you situated, though, I just wanted to let you know that we are streaming to YouTube live from Fourth Space, which is located on unceded indigenous lands in Jage, Montreal. Uh, As caretakers for the lands and waters we are meeting on, we'd like to extend our gratitude to the Kunyanka Haga Nation for their teachings about the earth and our relations. At 4Space, if you're unfamiliar with the operation here. We work with our university community to mobilize and exchange knowledge by co-creating daily activities such as this one. This week, we have the pleasure of collaborating with Concordia University Public Scholar and PhD candidate in Communication Studies, Scott DeYoung, for a full week of playing here live in the space and questioning via conversation events such as this one, educational games. So welcome and welcome back to day three of the Bad Game Arcade. And I'll pass it over to you now, Scott. Uh, Welcome.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you to the panelists and the audience, both online and in person, for being here. Um, I appreciate everyone taking the time out to come and talk about educational games, but also gamification and game-based learning and all those fun things we're going to get into very soon. I should also just say thank you for the event to The Force Space for making sure that's possible where you're gonna see incredible different camera angles and hopefully like, I mean, to my knowledge has always been crystal clear audio because they're incredible. Um, and so thank you for being here and for them for the space. And I should also thank um, the Technoculture Art and Games Institute as they funded some of the uh, budget for the event. And so I appreciate that from them. Um, So just before we get in, I would like to introduce all of the wonderful uh, five people we have in this panel. Um, And so the panel is focused on gamification, game-based learning, games, where's the line? And so we have five people joining us today. Um, I'm going to actually just go from my left to right instead of the order that I have on my sheet here. So beside me here is Remy Nusser. Nusser? Nusser. That's good. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Uh, and so after a decade of honing his marketing skills in the shark infested waters of B2B, Rami decided to switch industries to his true passion, which is video games. He embarked on a peril filled journey through the world of educational games for kids and emerged with a treasure trove of marketing knowledge. If you talk to him, he will do his best to convince you to download Math Makers, an app that's proven to teach kids math through play and is also available to play in the space for anyone who's here um, he also lectures dawson college teaching video game developers how to promote their games when he's not marketing video games or teaching video game marketing he's writing a best-selling novel and playing tekken competitively i have questions about that but we might have to <laughs> save that for the question period yeah, so later good. in the event uh beside him we have chris cooley cooley uh, who is currently consulting on the math, science, and technology dossiers, among other varied technological projects. Chris has an extensive background in integrating technology, supporting educators, and creating STEAM spaces in schools. When not working with educators, you can find Chris blogging about great music, making succulent food, noodling out songs, drawing lines and dots, playing with the children, or braving the Canadian elements, all of which I also have questions about. Cool um, it, is, it is a bit chilly today. Uh, beside Chris, we have the other Chris, Chris Chancy, who is the CEO of Man of Void Entertainment Incorporated. The company recently released Rainbow Billy, the Curse of the Leviathan to critical acclaim. Um... Very high positive score on Steam, and you can also play it here on the other side of that screen. Um, he is also the co-founder of the Indie Asylum, a video game startup accelerator. In his work, he has been able to invest in six video game startups. Currently, he is the president of the board of La Guilde de Jeu Video de Quebec. I apologize for any mispronunciation there. Uh, and teaches game design programming and entrepreneurship at two universities, UDM and UQAT. Next up, we have Matthew Johnson, who is the Director of Education for Media Smarts, which is Canada's Center for Digital Media Literacy. He's the architect of Media Smarts' use, understand, and engage digital media literacy framework for K-12 schools and designer of many resources, including both digital and analog games. And last but not least, on the screen joining us uh, is Sana Maskud, uh, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at York University. She's interested in making computer systems more usable and accessible for users and improving their understanding of these systems. She She utilizes interactive technologies such as games to improve users' understandings of computer security. So we have quite a group of people here, all of which have done things around either game design, game implementation, uh, and those games vary from things we might delineate as gamification or game-based learning, and I know that those definitions are things that not everyone's familiar with. So I'm gonna start with a question that kind of gets at that. So there's a lot of definitions we can use here. Do these various definitions actually help us? Does having all these different terms that we can refer to games and their mechanics actually make a difference? And do they actually influence how we can think about our design of educational games in a way that's constructive?
2: I mean, uh, like uh, to throw myself on the grenade here, uh, I think, you know, like it, it's, it's useful in terms of, you know, the study of what, you know, this new medium and everything that comes around it. I think, you know, as university students, teachers, Ph.D. candidates, whatever it is, I think it's, it's useful to be able to delineate and try and understand like where the buck stops. I think with a, like a marketing hat on, it doesn't really help the public understand the industry. And there's already so much misunderstanding around the industry that uh, I feel like you know, what is a serious game? What is a game? What is a gamification? And all of these things might might be a little bit more uh, tough to to wrap your head around. My mother, for example, thinks I draw for a living, which <laughs> is, has nothing to do. With you know what I do in video games, so I think you know there's there's a lot of education still to do for, for those types of delineations to like I think permeate towards the general public. But I feel like they are useful for us to you know wrap our heads around what what we're trying to do here.
1: I mean, I heard marketing, I know we have mm-hmm. someone that does game marketing here. Do you have thoughts on that?
2: Uh, I'm
3: not sure what the question is
1: on having all these different definitions. Does that actually oh, help yeah, us? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Uh, so when you make a game that is educational and you work in the industry and you play these games are educational uh, and someone uses the word gamify learning, you might think, oh, that just means put some learning into a game and that's cool. But gamification is not at all what that is. Gamification is taking something that is intrinsically not pleasurable or something you don't wanna do and then throwing some candy your way so you do it, right? That's what gamification is. And so it's very different from game-based learning and so I find it is important for us to maybe take a few minutes to define what those words are, if not for the general public, then at least for the discussion that we're about to have so that we don't misconstrue or misunderstand <laughs> what, what we're all saying to each other. Uh, yeah, so I would think, you know, taking a few minutes to define what we think gamification is and maybe what game-based learning is if we're going to talk about that. Uh, and then it would be much easier to talk about it knowing what the word we're talking about is, means. Okay. Would someone like to take
1: a stab at offering their definition? I mean, all of you work within this space in some capacity. Well,
4: gamification to to me um, Mm -hmm. is incorporating the mechanics of gaming within your classroom to the stuff you're normally doing. So you give a text to a kid. They have to answer questions. The first one done gets a point, and the points add up. And at the end of the week, whoever has the most points gets... You know, to, to not have to do homework that weekend. That would be gamification of something. Um, game-based learning is using games as your content vehicle. Um, so you're you're using the games, example, SimCity, right, to look at um, social sciences, um, using uh, Minecraft to uh, look at um, building design or medieval castles, building them and then giving information about them within the game. So it they're very different, but as an educator working with teachers, I see that confusion continuously. And as soon as game comes in, it's just, I don't know. It's like a bad word <laughs> sometimes in schools. We're playing games in class, what? You know, in parents, you're gaming in class, what the? So I think that a lot of times all of these terms, regardless of if it's gamification, game-based learning, it comes with this baggage mm-hmm. of it not being scholastic, it not being um, a vehicle for learning. Mm-hmm. Um, yet our children spend hours and hours a day, a night <laughs> playing these things um, and understanding. And one thing of failure, I mean, how can we can't transfer um, gaming failure to classroom failure. There's a question.
1: I mean, yeah. I kind of. Do you want to jump on that?
5: No.
4: Yeah. I mean, that
5: is that is an interesting one. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. But I did really find it interesting that the two examples that you used are both things that, by convention, we call games, but which don't fit in many definitions of the word game. That both SimCity and Minecraft, they both lack a lot of the elements or at least some of the elements that many people include in a definition of a game because neither one can really be won or lost uh, minecraft in particular is really tremendously open-ended which is one of its strengths but it shows getting back to that question of definition just how tricky it is you know it's relatively simple to you know distinguish between gamification and games or game-based learning but when we talk about actual games that becomes it kind of oh, it does open a can of worms, but it's interesting what you were saying that, I mean, one of the benefits of games is that they are built to, to encourage mastery learning, because in most games, basically, since the, end, since the end of the coin-op era, games have been pretty gentle when it comes to failure. Uh, as soon as they got all your money up front and didn't have to squeeze another quarter out of you, it became very gentle that, okay, you failed, you can try again, and you'll do better next time. And of course, that's not generally how our education system works. And in some of our more um, elaborate games, including the one I worked on with Santa, we actually had to provide teachers with different options for grading, where they could say, "You you can either take the first score the student got, the best score, or the more recent score. And we had to provide teachers with those options because some teachers didn't like the idea that students could try again. Uh, whereas other ones wanted to give teacher students the ability to try again and do better the next time.
1: I I wanna see if Santa wants to jump in at all here. Um, Would you like to add anything, Sana?
6: Yeah, um, I think I agree with the definitions that were presented, um, you know, difference between game-based learning uh, and gamification. Um, Something that I wonder is when it comes to effectiveness, um, you know, is gamification better or worse than game-based learning? Does one approach lead to better games in terms of learning than the other?
2: I have
3: a really strong opinion about that. <laughs>
2: drop it. Drop it. Uh,
3: yeah. Um, if you want someone to play your game, it needs to be a game <laughs> and not some other thing with game wrapped around it, right? So. <laughs> If you think about uh, teaching whatever the subject is, uh, and you, I don't know, pottery, (laughs) And, and so you make a game about pottery. And so you either make this game where it's a game and you're playing this game and you're doing this stuff, and then maybe subconsciously you understand pottery concepts versus you know instructions like step one do this, step two do this, and I guess maybe that's not a great example pottery because it just sounds like so much fun. But um, you
5: get a point for every pot you make.
3: Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you make just make pots and then get points for the pots. That's less fun than maybe getting deeper into the subject. And so um, you know, Math Makers, which is the, the game that that we make, is is a math game. And when kids play it, they, they're not solving equations. They're basically melting lava with ice and solving puzzles and you know, doing weird and wonderful things in the game. And then after the fact, if we test them with math, uh, we see their test scores have gone up If when we do the test before and after the game. Uh, so they didn't solve an equation. They didn't see numbers, really. They didn't like do a plus or a minus or anything in their minds uh, or consciously, let's say. But while playing and solving puzzles, they were subconsciously doing addition, subtraction, all these things, right? And so... Um, The effectiveness there is that they're playing a game and they're enjoying this game they're not feeling like they're doing a chore and you're giving them candy for the chore right and so that's for me the big difference between game-based learning and gamification gamification for me is like if you're playing i don't know an rpg final fantasy or whatever and you need to grind levels because there's a boss you have to kill and you can't beat that boss and grinding sucks you basically go to an area and you just kill the same enemy over and over again getting bigger and better and more items and so on You don't enjoy the grind most of the time. You just do it because you want the items at the end. And so there would be nothing to to learn from that besides just doing this thing over and over again because you you want the the extrinsic reward that comes with it. And so for me, you make a game first and something that's pleasurable and fun and exciting and you want to be a part of it. And then if there is learning within it, that's great. Uh, As opposed to trying to make something really educational, and then coding it with some game that may or may not work. The example I gave Scott earlier is, you know, you're a dragon slayer and you go and you fight a dragon, you have this giant sword and you swing it at the dragon. And then as you're about to hit two plus three solve. And if you don't solve it, then you lose. Like that would be the worst game ever. That that is a game. Yes. (laughs) Very,
5: very successful. Very, very unethical educational game. (laughs) That's
2: trickery. Yeah. Can we
1: hang on that word unethical for a second? Okay. Oh, uh, what are yeah. you kind of trickery and well, unethical? What are we meaning by okay? Well, words? in this
5: case, I, I'm talking about this particular one. I'm describing it as unethical because it has really unethical um, uh, pre- freemium elements. So it's not unethical because it's an educational game. It's, the fact that it's an educational game is how it gets away with being unethical and how it gets into classrooms and homes, despite the fact that its main purpose is squeezing micropayments out of small children. Um, and that, I mean, educational, we know this with educational TV, educational can be a a shroud that covers a multitude of sins. I mean, when you look at things developed in the 1980s and 90s in the U S that were supposedly educational before they kind of tightened those rules up a little bit, um, you know, it would, it would be 21 minutes of GI Joe and Cobra blasting one another and one minute of, don't Joe giving you the moral of this story was and then you know that's that's your make what makes it educational um but it's also just a bad the game going back to the game i was talking about i don't want to name it because i don't want to give it any uh any airtime <laughs> uh it's just a plain bad game for the reasons that you were saying that it, it literally is it's it's a reskin of pokemon essentially where you you get to a certain point and you have to form you have to answer a math question and it's your classic you know drill and skill game and you know at at that level it works the gamification elements do work to a certain extent to get kids to keep playing um but it's not teaching them anything deeper than a, a worksheet would do it's just got these these elements that aren't even necessarily gamification elements in the literal sense things like a narrative things like a fantasy world things like little you know cosmetic benefits that don't actually make it more game like but make it feel more like a game which kind of goes back to that question of just what is a game anyway um and those things i think are actually more powerful than than the actual game-like leveling up elements in it
2: i think when you when you talk about effectiveness, you need to consider the alternative, you know, and like, I think that's why even these like cheap mechanics and systems that are brought in do have a more effective result than having someone drone on in front of a mm-hmm. PowerPoint presentation, for example. Uh, is it like as effective as it could be? No, I don't I completely agree. I think it's more effective than, you know, the alternatives that existed in the past. And I mm-hmm. understand why. That was like the first reflex when we talked about gamification was like, oh, point systems. Okay, well, mm-hmm. yeah, those are easy to implement, I guess. And, and that's why, you know, naturally people uh, went towards that. I, I can like, I, when I think about like, you know, what I learned from playing games, for example, uh, you know, I used to work at the SAQ, which is a, an amazing student job because you get 40% off of all alcohol. And uh, I remember that they had implemented these training sessions where instead of having someone kind of to like work work with you through all of the different things that you need to learn, you had to like, you know, drag and drop things and they made it more interactive. And uh, I felt like, you know, studying games at the time, if I was in university, like literally studying games and I was like, wow, this is really shit. Like <laughs> this, is, this is terrible. But every other employee that had, you know, anyone who was, I guess, forty years and older were like, Oh wow, this is like so much better than what they usually do. And so I think for them it was a big plus yeah. and it was like a big step in the right direction. And then when I think about the most effective ways that I've learned things through things through games, I, I think of a game like World of Warcraft, for example, where, you know, I ended up being you know, a guild leader and I was 14 years old and I was telling these 40 year old men what to do. And, you know, with 40 people raids and I was an introvert and I learned how to, you know, leadership skills and communication skills and, you know, it was fixing issues between players. And, and in the end, I feel like I got a lot more out of that experience where there was essentially no real intent in me learning anything. <laughs> they just wanted my money. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in some perverse way, I, I learned a lot of, you know, useful soft skills through, through playing that game. And I think, in that sense, game-based learning, I, I feel, is more effective because at the core of it, it all is the fun aspect of it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to put it. And I'm going to kind of pitch a question that builds on that. And I'm going to pitch it to you first, Santa, and then we can all jump in after. Um, is Do you think there's certain subjects that afford themselves more towards gamification systems versus game-based learning systems? Like, are there certain Uh, disciplines or spaces in the curriculum that are better gamified and better GBL or game-based learning uh, than others?
6: Yeah, I think subjects where there's no like clear right or wrong answer are better suited for game-based learning. Um, Subjects that are more complex or there's nuances, um, I think they're better suited because you can build a world that allows students to explore different options, you know, critically think about different choices in the game. So I think we need to be able to build different choices, allow students to make those choices and explore the consequences of those choices. So I think any subject that is more nuanced and complex and allows like an opportunity for exploration would be better suited for it. Um, As opposed to, I think topics where there's like a clear right or wrong answer, um, they don't really lead themselves um, best for a game-based learning environment in my opinion
4: I'll, I'll jump in on that um I think that skills in schools anyway um, are always everyone's job and nobody's job similar to digital citizenship that we we have programs that we're supposed to look at in schools and again it's it's everybody's job and nobody's job. So oftentimes it gets overlooked. um, And we just don't provide students with enough practice of stuff. Games is practice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody becomes, um, attains mastery or gets to that next level without repetition, mistakes, talking with other people, how'd you figure that out? Like I ask kids um, oftentimes when I'm in class, They'll be very quick to say, oh, I can't do this, you know, like building something or, you know, whatever it might be that is is school based. And then I'm like, well, what do you do when you're at home playing games? They're like, I'll play it again. I can start over again. Um, So it's this this idea that they can develop the skills over time and master something. Whereas I think in schools, we do less of that. And it's 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 a 79 percent. So I only got 79% of it, and then I move on anyway. Like, it's confusing, I think, for kids that we don't allow them to master things before they go on to the next level. Whereas with games, you have to, or you can't move on. Um, I think, too, that teachers with the idea of games coming back to this a little bit is, again, a fear of their own as well, because they just don't feel like they have the capacity to um manage a classroom um, involved in games Uh, i think that that is difficult to to come by except hour of code right one time a year (laughs) get all the kids together somebody's gonna come in and train us we'll all play the coding game the plus five two plus five okay go on to the next level i mean that seems to be a comfort level but then when you ask to go into more complex games where stories are told and stories are created and shared, because to me, games, that's what it is, it's stories, right? Um, with certain challenges you have along the way, it, it's the, the connections aren't being made. So to, to game developers, I think, analyze the curriculum, you know? Figure out what teachers need to teach in class and embed that in your games and you will get uptake. Because they'll see the connection between, here's what I have to cover. Well, it's in this game. Here, 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 here. And I've added all these skills as well in there. So they have to collaborate. They have to problem solve. They have to think creatively. You ask employers nowadays what they look for in qualities in kids that are coming out of school. It's not their marks in math or they did the highest science. And it's how do they work with other people? How do they collaborate? Can you see that? And where do you see that? Because you can't see it on a worksheet. You just can't, right? You have to see the kids involved in interaction or something where they're manipulating or changing or, and then you get to see these beautiful skills come out um, that that are sought after. I mean, we're not equipping our students. You know, as a game master, you think, okay, I got to make sure that my characters are good. They can move on to the next level. I got to equip them. If teachers saw that more, I think, And then using the games that accompany those to get them doing it that has the content embedded in it well who
2: knows (laughs) it's i i i I think you know i I wouldn't say there's any i I feel it's too early as a medium to say that some subjects are too tough to tackle for video games or i think you know we haven't been incentivized as an industry yet to make these types of games so i think there's still a lot of innovation And technology and things that are going to come that are going to make these the development of these types of experiences a lot easier, and we'll see some amazing things and some subjects that you never thought would be fun come out. Uh, And that's kind of my take on it. Is you know, give me a subject and enough time, and I feel like I could find a really fun game to to make and and, you know teach what I need to teach. Uh, Is just right now I would never be paid to do that. You know, there's there's no money in it. Uh, and I'm, this is the capitalist developer <laughs> talking here. Uh, and you know, we've done some pro bono work with schools and other things like, you know, I, I've done a lot of different endeavors uh, in gamification and, and other things, but you know, it's never, you know, the, it's not going to help you as an industry or it's not going to help you as an entrepreneur. And so, you know, it's, it's not encouraged really. And then the only things that end up being made are things that don't cost a lot of money because of not a lot of money is being put pumped into it. And that's fundamentally a problem.
5: Yeah, I just, I wanted to go back to the the previous point a little bit, because, you know, there is a part of the curriculum that embraces games wholeheartedly, but that basically never comes up in these conversations, and that's phys-ed. But I think phys-ed is kind of an interesting, it's an interesting object lesson, because it's probably, except maybe tied with math, it's probably the subject where people form a fixed idea of their capabilities earliest. Um, and a lot of that does have to do with games or with game elements, game aspects like com- competitiveness. Um, so as much as you see an example there where, yeah, for a lot of kids, phys ed or gym is their favorite class because they get to play games. And for other kids, it's their least favorite game because, or their, sorry, their least favorite class because they don't want to play the game. They feel they're bad at the game. They feel they don't get an opportunity to get better at the game. And, you know, when it's unsuccessful, it's really an example of, you know, putting the cart before the horse, where the game is coming in front of what the game is supposed to be teaching.
2: And then player motivation, I think, is something that Mm -hmm. we don't explore enough. Like, there's not enough game studies that have covered why people play games and what makes a game fun for one person and another person. Mm -hmm. And so we're still, I think, figuring those types of things out. Like, I think what you just mentioned is essentially two different types of people who enjoy different types Mm -hmm. of games or different types of motivations to play games. The person who loves chess might not love football, Mm -hmm. you know, but because they're not getting the same motivation out of it. You know, one person might be more of a social player. The other one might be more of a competitive player, you know, and all of these different motivations, I think, are things that even game developers don't currently consider enough when they're making their games. And so you usually cater to a really specific demographic instead of being able to kind of explode that and, and offer something that might, you know, have a little bit of something for everyone. Um, so that's also something I think is is lacking. Yeah. Right,
1: I think that brings us to another question, but did you want to jump in before I ask it?
2: Um, I just agreed with, with Chris. That's uh,
3: like the key or the thing that they teach you or you learn in the industry is, do you know who you're going to sell this game to? And if you don't, then are you sure you should be designing this game? Because maybe you're just going to make, you spend like $3 million, whatever, developing this thing that no one wants to buy. And now you've just, it's $3 million out of the drain and you're in trouble, <laughs> right? So- uh,
2: The person who gave you $3 million is in trouble. Yeah, there you go. You're okay,
3: you're okay. Uh, but so it's, it's always important to know who you're developing the game for. And, um, you know, we talk about educational games. Um, to answer uh, Sana's uh, remark just a little bit, um, there are a lot of uh, games that are using game-based learning for, uh, for topics that have very specific um, answers. So spelling, um, math, et cetera, right? And I do think some of them are successful. I think the majority of them are garbage. But some of them are exceptional. Uh, math makers play our game. Uh, and um, the reason, well, one of the things that comes up with that is you develop the game for a certain person, so a child, but what you have to do is convince the parent to purchase the game. And there's a huge disconnect there. And it's like you were saying, uh, the moment you say game, uh, people tend to freak out. Like, yeah, I want my kid to learn math, but I don't want them to learn to play a game and learn math. I, they just sit down and do timetables, you know, for 20 hours a week and they'll learn math, right? Do what I did. Do what I did, right? But, but it's not the same thing. You know, kids now are bombarded with screens everywhere they go and there's, there, there's so much stuff Throwing, being thrown their way that school or whatever they're trying to learn is vying for attention in like a whirlpool of other things, right? And so if kids are playing games now, because games are fun, everyone plays games now, right? Uh, then maybe making games is a really good way to reach them. But then the hard part is making games that are quality, making games that are designed well, making games that also convince the parent that this is worth it for your money for your child. Like there are a lot of factors that come in. So I understand why people may not develop games for everyone, right? And focus on a niche because they're like, okay, I know that six to eight year olds who need to learn spelling, their parents will pay good money for this because they have trouble with this. So I can make a game for that one topic and I will probably sell it. But nine to 12 year old spelling, I probably can't make a game for that, right? That's so it's very, very niche down.
1: I really like the way that you've all kind of phrased it and there was kind of conversations of like how do we assess the value here and I think assessment is a key part of anyone who's working in the education sector. We know about its its potential and I, I am going to throw it to you again, Solana, because you are the academic in the room who we talked about like assessing the the success of a game and the output of a game and I know you mentioned doing some stuff with media smarts on that and so is there kind of a, a space that we can like, is there a way that we can effectively assess the, the learning potential of these games, but also, you know, the effectiveness of the gamification tools or the game-based learning tools that we're doing? Is there actually a meaningful way that we can do that?
6: Um, I think it's I think it's challenging to develop uh, assessment me- mechanisms that are effective. Um, so in terms of how do we go about and do it, I think in order to develop something that you can use to assess learning, you really need to be familiar with whatever topic is being being taught. So when it comes to our game, we had worked with MediaSmarts very closely who were the content experts to figure out, okay, what are the learning goals? What is exactly being assessed from each part of the game? And then we kind of brought that into our assessment tools. Um, but even then we had to continually test our tools with users to figure out, okay, do that work or do we need to change something? So for example, when we developed questionnaires um, to assess learning before playing the game and after playing the game, it was a very iterative process where we had to do multi- multiple iterations to make sure that we were assessing what was in the game. Um, also, if if a game is being played in a classroom, uh, sometimes learning is happening outside of the game with other players, with teachers and so we have to come up with tools that kind of take that into uh, into account uh you know sometimes learning does not solely take place within the game and the player themselves so i think we need to look at how to develop more effective mechanisms that take other aspects of learning into account especially when multiple people are playing a game together right even if it's an individual game maybe two friends are playing together uh, if a parent and a child are playing together, there's learning happening outside of the game. And I, I think we still haven't figured out um, how to measure that.
2: The metrics that you're looking at are kind of, I guess, the basis of where you're assessing. But it's really tough. And I feel like, you know, this is like such a larger discussion on how we actually evaluate kids in schools. But, you know, giving someone a score is fucking useless. Like, let's <laughs> be honest. Like, you can't evaluate, like, someone's social development through a score like you know you can only that the, you need to look at the qualitative aspects of of it all and and i think that's why you know that's why like the teachers have such a huge responsibility to actually pay attention to every kid in a class to understand how that kid's development is going from beginning of the year to end of the year because some things might not show up like in a bulletin board it might just show up mm-hmm. just in the way that they're interacting with other people and all that kind of stuff so That's a huge job. I I have no idea how I would assess (laughs) that kind of stuff. I I think, you know, the easy stuff is just, yeah, the grades are better. But, you know, the the fact that we're grading and and what does that really say about a person's intelligence or their development, I I still doubt. I remember nothing of my (laughs) passage in school, even university. I remembered the thing the day before the exam, forgot it the day after. So I think in the end you know we, we really need to have, have a good look at how we're teaching <laughs> a lot of different subjects to, to figure out how I think how you, I think you nailed it though that
4: we look at the process that that happens in kids when they're learning right and I think games do a good job at that as well because you go through progress right so it's very um you know it's formative assessment rather than this end of result summative thing where we're gonna to get to the end of the term. I'm giving you this test, you gotta pass. You, you'll get a percentage on a line, so there's no mastery involved. You'll do the best that you can. If you get this certain level, then you'll move on. If we're looking at formative assessment, and I think games have a great entryway in here, we're looking at process. I don't really care. I want to swear. I don't give a shit.
5: I was told this is Carlin (laughs) rules. I I was told it's totally fine.
4: (laughs) It just makes it more uh, to the point. I don't care if the kid's end result flops. But if I can see that they've done the process and the work and the thought and have like a journal that they have or, you know, notes that they take throughout or a blog where they put their results on. I think those kinds of ways of evaluation of kids are valuable, not only to that we get a mark at Mm -hmm. the end and we can prove to parents, yeah, look at your child went through this process, that the kid also sees it. And I think that that's the power that sometimes when we get a 78, my kid comes to me, he's like, well, I got 78. I'm like, okay, so what's the 27, you know, whatever you didn't (laughs) get. He's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, what's the 78 that you did get? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're not giving them any tools to 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 fill in the gaps that might not be there in a summative. But when we're looking at process. It's all there, right, it's right in front of them, it's in their face. So sometimes just tweaking those little Mm -hmm. things and it really comes back to a lot of the times I'm supporting teachers with thinking with the universal design for learning process, because that like you guys look at who is my audience? Who is gonna play Mm -hmm. this game? And that's where you start your your thoughts from, and then it goes from there. But the intent is always like, what are these kids needing to learn? What's my pedagogical intent with whatever I'm, you know, be it a game or a a lesson or a project, whatever it might be. Um, And I think that you guys as game developers go through that process, which is amazing, because it does lead towards learning. And in the end, that's what we want kids to leave you know, elementary school, secondary, higher education, with the sense that they know how to learn. You know, they know the process, they know themselves as learners and how to figure something out. And I think games help them do that because they're not afraid of mistakes. They'll do it over and over again. They'll practice like heck until they get it. Um, And if we can instill that more in our classrooms, I think the kids will, will benefit you know, on a larger scale.
5: Well, and I think, you know, you're really pointing out that school is already gamified. It's the most gamified environment most of us will ever be in. Um, And I mean, I was a classroom teacher for about 10 years. And you could tell the difference between the kids who knew how to play the school game. They knew the moves they could make, they knew the things that they could do to get the best grades or to get the you know, the option to rewrite something or something like that. And then they're the ones who were doing their best, but didn't know the rules. They didn't know how to play. And there, there were the ones who had concluded that they weren't going to win anyway. And I've, I think we've all been in this situation where you're in the last quarter of a game, it's Monopoly or it's Scrabble or something like that. You have no way of winning. Maybe you have no way even of coming in second. You're still playing, but you check out. And we all know kids like that, uh, that they've come to the yeah, conclusion. Exactly. They've come to the conclusion that the school game is not for them, that they're just not going to win it. And so I think when we're talking about gamification in school, we do have to be conscious that this is a system that's already gamified, that to a certain extent, what we probably want to do is de-gamify school um, to make it more about the learning and less about the game. I remember I'm old enough to say I took Latin in high school and uh, talking about you talking about how you would forget things right away. It w- for exams in Latin, it was more efficient for me to just memorize the texts I was going to have to translate than to actually learn the language. So that's what I would do. What it meant was I didn't really learn Latin, but I got good marks and that was the motivator. That's a good example of how the game element, the points system actually in some ways prevented me from learning the subject because it was so much more efficient for me to cheat. I mean, it wasn't cheating. I could, I couldn't We failed for it, but I wasn't learning. I wasn't showing my knowledge in the way that I should, I was supposed to
2: And games have that strength that mm-hmm. like the fact that it's fun just makes you learn regardless of anything else.
5: But that's like, something you have to watch out for in a game too, is if you have a dominant strategy. Like that's, yeah. been the, that's been the downfall of so many games True. is, and the often it'll only come, it'll come after the design, after it's out there in the world. And it's like, oh, there's one thing that's clearly the best thing to do. And sometimes it's just convention that you don't do it. Like in diplomacy, right? It's mm. just convention. Two people don't make an unbreakable alliance because it destroys the game. There's nothing in the rules against it, but by convention, it's there. But there are lots of other games where it's just clear. Yeah, you could play it. You could play it this way. You could play it that way. You could play it another way. But there's one way that's so much clearly better that you get pushed by the gameplay and doing it that way.
3: So if if you don't mind, uh, I had to fix my microwave two weeks ago, (laughs) and I did not know how to fix my microwave. And I needed a microwave. And so if this was school, I would have got a big fat F in microwave (laughs) fixing but because this is real life, I had YouTube. And so I went on YouTube, I found the model, watched three videos, and it took 40 minutes to fix the microwave. So school tends to give you the one chance, like you, Mm -hmm. you've got your big year end finals, right? And you may make it through the whole year. Okay. But if you screw up on that big final, you're tanked, right? But real life doesn't necessarily work. Maybe if you're a surgeon, you know, you don't want to, mess up during the surgery but for most jobs you can make a mistake you can make multiple mistakes as long as you learn from the mistake and you fix it on the next you know go through you're okay right and, and um, it's, it's very similar to how games work like you were saying you, you play the same level over and over again you make a mistake you get past it the next time and so on and eventually you finish the game uh, so I find old NES games which were hard as nails like coin op games too mm-hmm. um, you know they make you so angry. Like you want to throw your controller against the wall, but if you make it through the game, what you develop and what the game teaches you is perseverance. And that's like the first skill you learn when you're playing old games. Like, do you want to get good at this? If you do, you got to practice because you're never going to make it otherwise. And so a lot of old school gamers from the coin op era, from the NES era, develop perseverance just because of the way games treated them. Right. Um, And I don't know if, school necessarily gives you that same sort of reward to make you persevere um self-efficacy is is a concept that we we talk about a lot often at uh, ulu lab which is um like a person's self-confidence in whether or not they will succeed at a thing right so i'm bad at math that means you have low self-efficacy i'm good at math and you may or may not be but that means you have high self-efficacy right so um it's sort of like the confidence that comes with that or that it's, it's like a, another word for confidence at a topic right and self-efficacy is super important in terms of learning for kids and I'm not sure if school works as well on self-efficacy as games do just because a game will let you retry until you get good at it and then eventually you're confident at the game but school doesn't always give you the chance to retry till you're confident and I, I wish that was I don't know if there's a solution, but. I feel like that's one thing that games do really well that makes game-based learning so powerful is is develop your confidence and then suddenly you can ride the bike and you're good at math and you're good at whatever, right?
6: Um, I just wanted to add to Matthew's point about school being gamified. I 100% agree. Um, but I think... What if we can change the rules of this, the, the, the school game, to match some of the rules that exist in games? So, what, I think something that's coming across is games really allow failure. They welcome failure because by failing repeatedly, you get better. But schools don't allow that. You have one shot on this assignment or a test, and you have to get it right then, right? So I think that's a problem in schools. Like we don't allow enough failure. And so in the game of school, I think we could change the rules a little bit where students are allowed to submit an assignment multiple times until they get it right. Right. So what if you can repeatedly fail and try to get like a 100? And we had a course in, um, in computer science that did that. So essentially students would submit the assignment. It would get submitted to an automated grader. It would give them a score saying, well, your code is not hundred percent. You have an 80%, you know, um, on this assignment but you get to try again. And what they found is that students would try more and ultimately learn better. Um, so I think that's something that the education system could take into account. Like this, this idea of failure from games and how do we incorporate that into traditional school?
3: Sorry, Sana, can I just ask you if they had the choice to try or not?
6: Yeah, so they had the choice up until the deadline to keep awesome. trying.
1: I mean, I think that question of agency that you actually just bring up is really important when we think about that. Because when we talk about gamification systems, it's about motivation. An agency is very much tied into, like, can we self-motivate or do we need a gamification system to motivate? And so the the kind of question I'm getting at here is, like, how much... When we're making a game, when we're designing a tool to be used in these classrooms, are we balancing that line between motivating them through like intrinsic rewards in the game, such as points, such as star powers, or a shop that they can use to decorate their character, versus using like the game itself as the point to motivate, or some other forms of motivation? Like, how much are we wanting to rely on gamification principles to motivate, and where else can we find that motivation in what we're making? I don't know who wants to take a stab at
3: that. Um, I I can, if you don't mind. I'm a big fan of talking about motivation, intrinsic and extrinsic, right? Um, Duolingo is a really, a really good example. I'm sure you all know what it, what it is. It's a, the app that teaches uh, a language, right? And so there is no, the game doesn't provide intrinsic motivation. The game provides extrinsic motivation exclusively, which is ling linguits or LingBits or whatever they're called. So you play every day, you get a streak and you, The more you play, the bigger your streak gets. And so your whole motivation is don't break my streak, right? And that's like completely extrinsic. Uh, And then they give you some objects like to freeze your streak and so that you don't lose your streak if you're sick one day and you don't want to play. And the problem with just a purely extrinsic motivation like that is at some point you may just be like, why am I doing this? (laughs) Who cares? This, This machine is telling me I have a streak, but it's not real. This is, you know, um, and then so there may be a drop off when that happens. But if the player themselves have an intrinsic motivation for learning the language, so if they're like, I want to learn Japanese so I can move to Japan next year, then the extrinsic motivation, motiv- motivation of, you know, giving them the linguists in the streak every day, combined with the fact that I want to go to Japan, suddenly means I have like double the motivation to make it. So you've got your deeper motivation, which is, you know, I want to, I want to go do this life-changing thing. And then the extrinsic motivation, the gamification that the game is bringing is what kind of keeps you going, holding on to that long-term goal. And so I don't think gamification itself is a bad thing, but it's purely extrinsic. And if it is, it will fizzle, right? So you need some kind of deeper thing to go with it. Uh, and so with a lot of games like I brought the the example of Final Fantasy game where you have to grind at some point to get bigger, you know, to get um, more items, stronger, et cetera. My motivation for grinding was I want to finish this game because I want to know what happens in the story. That was my motivation. So I went through this, you know, getting extra items and getting higher levels, whatever, to get to that final goal, which is like inside of me that I can't get rid of. And so finding uh, that intrinsic motivation is I think really what, uh is
2: defines or makes a game magical versus not that way and like what you just said is awesome because everyone wants to be told a good story that's Mm -hmm. i think a motivation that you know anyone is interested in my wife for example doesn't really play games but when i played the last of us she was next to me the whole time and she's not a native english speaker and so she told me, you know, we've been together for 12 years. And she said, well, I, she speaks good English today. And I'm like, in the end, I was like, well, what, what led to that? Is it just me talking to you in English? Are you hearing it around or she goes, no, it's when you play games or you watch shows. Like, uh, I just picked it up, you know, because she wanted to understand what the story was about. So, yeah, I think there, there are these, like, I'm sure there are these, these grand uh, intrinsic mm-hmm. motivations that kind of apply to a lot of different types of people. And then I'm sure that we can also find some that are very niche, that you can, can also motivate specific types of people. And I think that then becomes an interesting thing where, okay, well, if I'm trying to teach math to a kid between this age and this age, then what's the intrinsic motivation at that age that they might have? And then if you're able to like capitalize on that, you're able to teach them something without them realizing it. And I think that's the, that's the, the angle. It's like objective-based, I guess, and instead I, of,
5: yeah. I think that goes back to the idea of agency, because that really is the difference between playing a game, a narrative game, even a kind of a railroaded narrative game and reading a novel, for instance, um, is even though it's laid out for you, even if there's just one path to take or maybe three endings you can get to, you feel like you're doing it, uh, which I think is really powerful to kids. And that's why a game, you know, SimCity, for instance, is a game with almost no extrinsic rewards. I think it gives you points or you've got like a poll, I, I haven't played it in a long time, <laughs> but basically it, what the value of it is being in a position of making decisions, which of course is something kids very rarely have the opportunity to do. It's giving you tools to build. And that I think with Minecraft is much more uh, of a motivator than any of its more traditionally game-like elements. The other thing I would say about extrinsic rewards is that if you don't do them right, people can really resent them. And the example I'll give there is Snapchat, which is basically a game kind of like Duolingo with the streaks. Because, you know, when you send someone a snap, they send it back to you. You establish a streak. The number goes up every day that you both send one back and forth. But if you ever miss a day, either of you, the snap, the streak is over. And we did research with kids around photo sharing, and they talked about how, how much they resented that that they would, at the end of the day, they would like put their thumb over the camera of the phone and send a black square to everyone that they had a streak going with because they didn't want to bother doing a photo. It was just this chore that they had to do, but also they were tied into it, not just by the extrinsic reward, but because it was tied up with the intrinsic relationship element where, oh, if I break up a streak, if I break my streak with so-and-so they'll think I mean something by it, and not just that I'm really tired and that this is a really stupid thing to do. Um, and so, when you get those two bundled together, it can create it can create a dependency. There were a lot of kids who said they would love to stop doing it, but they didn't feel that they could. Uh, and it can create resentment. So we do, and that's what happens in school too with the gamified elements. At a certain point, uh, you know, the, the the fifth time you get a D in math, that D is not motivating you. That D is telling you, oh, okay, now I've got another 10 years of getting a D or worse in math, and then I'll finally be done. And that's the most you can hope for.
4: Let me just chime in for, like, I, I'm getting this idea about agency and um, ownership as well for the learning. Um, and oftentimes we've been kind of playing around with leading with a really good story. So it covers or it connects the kid to some of the content that you have to bring in. So a great book is always a great way, particularly in elementary schools, and then giving kids choice. And once choice comes into the game and it could be very minute choice, like um, you can decide when you're done or you decide what you want to hand in, where they just have some kind of choice Mm -hmm. in the game and they've been motivated with a really good story. The engagement and the ownership of that learning comes back to the kid Um, and I find that that's been fun to realize over the last few years that I've been dabbling with giving kids more choice and finding really good books that introduce. So storytelling again, and that idea of choice.
1: I love that. I'm just making sure no one else wanted to speak. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to ask one more question to you all that we have formally kind of like prepared to ask you all. I still have a thousand questions in my head, but that's just the grad student in me. I also just for anyone listening, please, if you have questions from the audience here, write them down or you can ask in a second. And if you're in the Zoom, you can put them in the chat or when we have a pause after this next question, you can raise your hand and we can do it that way. And you can unmute. Your but The last question I want to ask is something that's a bit more to the work that I'm doing and that I know that some of you are doing, which is, Sometimes games want to talk about like very serious, very sensitive, very um, specific issues that are kind of challenging to talk about. So um, Rainbow Billy is actually an example of a game that's talking about like very like specific social issues, right? You have like a non-binary primary character, which alone has, has become a social issue for some people. And do gamification practices like hit miss the mark when we're talking about very serious social issues, like? If we were to gamify something like that, does it minimize the effects? Uh, does it minimize the, or does it trivialize um, what is kind of being produced? Like, is there kind of a line that we have to think about around the mechanics we're putting in and the sensitivity of the issues that we're trying
2: to get through? I think so. I think yeah, you really have to be careful. Well, it depends on on what subject, obviously. But you know, in our case, uh, the the fact that we had a non-binary character. No one really gave a shit at the studio that, you know, we, we cared and we wanted to represent the community like in the best way possible. We had consultants like, you know, tell us, like, you can say this, you can not say this. And, you know, this is how it, they go through the uh, the development at that age when our character is eight years old. Right. But I mean, the, the fact that they were bi- non-binary in the uh, like meant nothing, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it was, it was like just natural. And then when we launched the game, it was like one of the primary marketing points that everyone rallied around was the fact that it was a non-binary character just because of like no one really talked about it before or it's not something that you usually see in terms of like gamifying it. I think, you know, when it's a touchy subject, you shouldn't try and, uh, like monetize it or, you know, you should not try and, and like get, uh, arbitrary, you know, thoughts or, or arbitrary points or juice out of it. I think if you're going to be tackling tough subjects, treat it with the respect uh, that it deserves. When we talked about like uh, i think i mentioned this earlier but we are, were making a game for kids and so it's a narrative game for kids and there's a lot of reading and there's a lot of you know uh, story in the game and we like in the first pass of writing had like uh calling you know some characters were calling other characters names like stupid and dumb and uh, that kind of thing and then when we like consulted with the you know child writing consultants they were like you can't do that and like oh well, i didn't feel like stupid was like a bad word really idiot like, guy think it's still, you know, is within the E for everyone range. And they're like, yeah, it is. But, you know, if you're going to be making a, like a, if you're going to be introducing like mental health, like issues in, in, in your game and all that kind of stuff, and you're arming kids with words that they can use against one another, you're defeating a bit like the purpose of, of what you were doing. Right. So, you know, we, we were like, yeah, in the end, of course, you of course we shouldn't do that. And we, we rewrote uh, like the in, entire game uh, in a lot of sections because we were just not using the right terminology. So I think that's like, yeah, treating it with respect. But then when it comes to like gamification specifically, it just feels cheap. So I think you don't want to cheapen a tough subject. And so I I feel like I would avoid that at all costs uh, because that's just asking for backlash.
3: Yeah, I would, I I agree with you uh, on that. And I don't think if you're going to, if you want to tackle a tough subject, I don't think it needs to be gamified. I think just telling a story from the perspective of a character that is going through whatever the subject is, is enough. Um, I, you know, I, I, I actually took a minute to get a nice quote, which I think you've all heard before, uh, which is Atticus Finch to kill a mockingbird. Uh, you can learn a simple trick scout. You'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb inside his skin and walk around in it. And, you know, people think of that the expression, uh, walk a mile in a man's shoes, right? And so when you, when you make a movie about, you know, a minority character, there is no game involved. You're just living the story through what you're watching and same with the book. And so you can do the same with a game, but it becomes more visceral because you are actually experiencing the things through, you know, the character that you are controlling, right? So if you make a game, I don't know, I would, but if you make a game about racism and you are a character that is being persecuted in the game, there is a chance that as the player, you may start to feel with that character, right? Hopefully, you're wired more or less normally. Um, And so, I don't think you need to gamify any of those elements. You don't need to give that person rewards for being you know, surviving, whatever it is they're surviving. Just living through the experience with them should be enough. Um, A friend of mine says going through deep social issues and people who struggle with them. It's, it's a question of empathy, right? It's a, an empathy problem. And I tend to agree with him. And when you play a game as a character, you control a character, you empathize with that character because in some ways you are that character as you play. So mm. I, I don't think you need to gamify that. I think just playing the game is enough.
5: I think, I think there are opportunities, but you have to be really careful. I mean, in the same way that you have to be really careful when you're representing mm. things uh, in, you know, in traditional media, uh, you need to make sure that there are people in the room who have that experience, who have that identity, so that you're not you know, speaking to it from outside of it. But we, one of the games uh, that we developed is a, a fairly small game about um, digital media and body image. And uh, it works around the idea of creating avatars. And it's a pretty simple experience where, in the first level, you have a choice of just a male or a female avatar, and both of them are highly stereotyped. You know, the the, the girl is like a brat doll, and the the boy is like a soldier. And the girl, you can you know change her different fashionable outfits, and you can give the boy different kinds of armor and weapons. And then the second level is you have a much wider range of of body types. A wider now you can change skin color. Now you can put any kind of clothes on any of the models. Um, And that is one that we don't encourage people just to play. We embed it in a lesson. We say, here is the discussion that you have with the students before the first level, after the first level, after the second level, because it does need some careful handling. But I do think it's really powerful. I think the the way that a game works, the way it shapes your behavior, can be even more powerful than just seeing representation in media, uh, for good or ill. And I'll give one good example and one bad example. And the the good example, what I really like, is a very simple game called The Tale of the ADHD Dinosaur, um, where you play a dinosaur who has ADHD, and you're given tasks, and periodically you'll get to the end of a task, and you'll find that the task has changed. The thing you were supposed to do has changed while you were doing it. And it was developed by people with ADHD and with experts in ADHD. And it's, you know, it's very light and it's very fun, but it really does communicate for someone who doesn't have ADHD, the experience of it and why from the outside, you know, it can look like they're like, you know, they're just scattered, but this is how it actually is for them. And the the flip side that I'll, that uh, is the idea, the mechanic which goes all the way back to, to the tabletop game, Call of Cthulhu, but you still see it in video games, the idea of sanity points, where you know, it's analogous to hit points, except instead when something happens to you, you lose some sanity points. And if you lose enough sanity points, you go insane. And in a lot of these games, there's also not even any way to get them back. Um, and you can see how, <laughs> what a dangerous message that's giving about mental health. First of all, that's just not how mental health mm. works. And it's also mm-hmm. saying that you cannot get over trauma It's saying, no, there's therapy, medication. No, not, nothing's going to help. Just sooner or later, you're just going to lose it and you're going to be in the rubber room. And, and that's, of course, how they always represent it. But that's another issue. So you can do it well. You can do it badly. But it uh, the mechanics of a game, I think, are so powerful that It's an opportunity. Um, It's an opportunity we want to use sparingly, and we only want to use, sometimes, as I say, we only want to use it when it's embedded in a well-guided activity or lesson. I think if you're just doing it as a game, it either has to be very small and focused, like ADHD dinosaur, or it has to be a very simple experience. Um, But I think it can be really
4: powerful. I just think gamifying empathy is a really hard thing to do i think that it's uh, i don't know if i've never seen it um in in a game done properly but there are a lot of platforms that are starting to surface i have this great one where you make comics and kids create an avatar of themselves that they insert in these comics so it's about storytelling but they make it in their image so they feel like i see myself in As a part of this, it's not just all, you know, one demographic. Um, And I think kids are starting to be more aware of that, but I think it's conversations that need to have. um, And like you guys were saying, with some of the games, having talks after are so important, that reflective point. um, After a student has completed playing with a game, where there might be things that need to be talked about, Um, you know, if there's risky games or whatnot, that those conversations are important. I think that's the role of teacher, you know, or the game master in in the case we're talking about. Um, One other thing I just want to mention too, is I'm still worried about how girls see themselves in video games. I really think that the demographics for our girls, and we see this in the reflection of the percentages of girls going into STEAM-related fields that could be game makers, programmers, coders, is extremely low. And I'm just wondering if they're not finding their, they're not attaching to these games that are out there, that oftentimes they're made for a demographic. And I am calling on you guys that make <laughs> games. That awareness needs to start to happen because we have one perspective in Steam fields and far too often it's that male perspective. Um, when it could be, we're kind of cutting off half of the whole population. Um, and I think that empathy in creating games, because I think girls like games. I mean, they are competitive and they like to, I mean, I'm a man, so I'm speaking from my perspective, but there's possibilities out there that if we have that empathy towards that demographic, that we could start to, to allow them to find their way. And I'm thinking about the future because I, we need more women in these fields. Absolutely.
2: There are, are actually more women <clears throat> playing games than men. Mm-hmm. Uh, those statistics yeah. are, are, I think, it's 51-49 or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for like um, for people making games, uh, because I teach in two universities, different. Like, I, I have to say that there are m- way more women in the last two years in my classes than there were in the last seven. So, I think it's uh, it's we're trending in the right direction, but obviously, it's still a, a societal thing that that we need to encourage and. And I think you're right. It's it's not offering the type the right type of uh, of incentives. I think at a younger age, or I don't. I don't think most women understand that it's even a possibility to make games uh, uh, at a at a young age. And and then you know, so so I think there's a lot that goes into that. And then obviously, everyone has a responsibility as developers. The more representation you can do, the better. I guess you know the um, everything goes. I just wanted to, to maybe like finally add because I, I like the word empathy and, and it reminded me of a project that we did during the pandemic. We were mandated by the, the National Archives of the U.S. to make a it was a game called The Situation Room. And it was essentially a, a role playing game where five people on Zoom would be able to come together and they all had a role that of what would happen during a 9-11. And you're around the Situation Room and everyone has a different role and a different objective. And, and you have to talk things through, and you need to reach your objective, and people don't know what you know, and so you're giving partial information, and you're trying to manipulate people into doing what you need them to do to be able to reach your objective. And uh, finally, uh, the National Archives completely changed the project on us at the last <laughs> second, and it became, a, a, the game is called I Thrive, uh, Lives in the Balance, and it became a... display. <laughs> awesome. And uh, it became a game about, uh, you know, being able to understand the different you know, perspectives during the pandemic. So, you know, you can play Las Vegas and you're trying to open the casinos and the CDC is like, we should shut everything off forever. <laughs> and, and, you know, like uh, all of the different, you know, states have different, you know, incentives and objectives and people are just trying to get people to vote in the same way that they would vote. And so, you know, there's rounds and people vote for different things. And and it, it ended up being a really interesting thing where people understood what walking in someone else's shoes were. You know, I, I, we understand what the CDC uh, what, what they're going through, but when you're playing the CDC and your objective is to keep everything shut down and you're just, people are like, the NFL needs to start again. We need to make more money. And you're like, well, it doesn't matter. People are dying. And, y- you know, all of these really interesting questions come up. And in the end, no one asked, did I win? You know, everyone was just, wow, that was a cool experience. Like, you know, I learned <laughs> that it's not, it's not a, co- it's a complicated issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was a, a cool experience, uh, empathy wise.
1: Just being cognizant of time as well, but I wanted to make sure, Sana, did you have anything you wanted to add to this discussion? Just because I know sometimes the lag of Zoom can make it hard to jump in if you wanted to.
6: Um, Yeah, I just wanted to mention um, for games addressing sensitive topics, I think it's important to build in some type of uh, debriefing towards the end. Um, So for players, you know, if they're playing a game about a sensitive topic, it can be an emotional experience. There should be opportunities for debriefing reflection at the end. Um, so, you know, providing them resources that they can seek out post playing the game. Um, and if it's being played in classrooms, obviously the teachers need to be prepared to discuss certain topics with kids, uh, you know, based on what they saw in the game. So for example, a game on racism, you know, um, the game tells a story that involves racism. It's a very sensitive topic. And, you know, that needs to be there needs to be opportunities at the end where the player can somehow talk to someone about what they just um, learned or observed in the game. So I think if games are going to tackle sensitive topics and they have a responsibility to build in those things at the end.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And so thank you all so much for your time being here in space. And Sana, thank you so much for being here online. And for everyone who is here in the space and everyone who's here online, either on Zoom or YouTube or whatever means you've hacked into our our stream. Thank you so much for being here. Have a wonderful night. And I'll see you all at some point in the future. If you have an idea for a podcast,
5: please let us know. You can contact us by email at info.4 at concordia.ca or find us on social media at cu4thspace. All social media is managed by Jacqueline Wexler. This episode of the Fourth Space Podcast is hosted by me, Maximus Delmar, and produced by Anna Voklavek and Douglas Moffat. Editing by myself, Douglas Moffat, and Chanel Lees-Marshall. Additional thanks to Supercontinent for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.